And now to our text for this morning. Our setting for today's passage is the upper room in Jerusalem. Jesus has begun this Passion Week and he's gathered the disciples together for a Passover meal. He has washed the disciples' feet. Uh, Pastor Nate uh, delivered a, a wonderful message last week that kind of brought some of those things together for us. We're still in that context. We're still in that evening as we move through John chapter 13 today. Jesus has spoken a blessing on his disciples, these 12 that have gathered but not on all of them, right? One of them is a devil. One of them is a betrayer. And Jesus is not extending the blessing to this betrayer. Jesus told his disciples he knew all of them that he had chosen. He had chosen Judas as well, but Judas was indeed a betrayer. And so his blessing was not upon the man who would eat Jesus' bread and then symbolically raise up his heel against him, who would accept him as a friend and a brother and yet be a great betrayer to him. Jesus knew that Judas would be a betrayer. He knew that Judas would not receive Jesus. Jesus proclaimed that those who do not receive him have also rejected the Father. And so we know that Judas has not just rejected Jesus, but has rejected God the Father as well, has chosen to reject him. Now, of course, betrayal is a brutal thing, isn't it? I mean, it's just a brutal thing to have a friend who would raise up his heel, who would raise up against us. The great betrayer, of course, in American history is Benedict Arnold. To say the name Benedict Arnold is synonymous with one who betrays. Major general in the American Revolution who fought for that cause for a couple of years, about three years, and then found that the cause no longer captured him anymore. And so he made a deal with the British that he would conspire to hand over the fortress at West Point to them in return for a commission in the British Army and, of course, a whole lot of money. That plot was found out, but not before Benedict Arnold could sneak away and make his way to the British lines and then be received by the British and, again, offered a commission in their army. But the British no more liked him than the Americans did. He was a betrayer. And uh, he sadly lived a not pleasant life after, after that. Benedict Arnold is our national betrayer. Every nation has a national betrayer, a name that's synonymous with betrayal. But Judas, of course, tops them all. Judas's betrayal had eternal ramifications for Judas and for all those who had followed that path of betrayal, of rejecting Jesus Christ and therefore rejecting God the Father as well. Judas's betrayal caught everybody off guard except for Jesus. Caught everyone off guard except for Jesus himself. But friends, today we're not just going to talk about betrayal. We'll certainly deal with Judas's betrayal because there's some complex questions that arise from that, right? Did he have a choice to betray? If he was the one who was predestined from the beginning, the scripture says, to be a betrayer, did he have a choice in all of that, right? These are questions that that bang around in our noggins, I know. They bang around in my noggin as well. But we're not just going to talk about betrayal. We're going to talk about love and loving one another. And it may not sound like those things go together, but Jesus puts them together in this final discourse, at least part of this, this first part, right? He addresses the betrayal. He then addresses the 11 disciples who are faithful to him and talks to them about this, what we'll call a final apologetic after the uh, words of Francis Schaeffer, the great philosopher and uh, Christian uh, teacher from the um, uh, 20th century. Um, uh, here in the United States. This final apologetic that the disciples were to love one another. And then sandwiched there will also be 
Jesus, or, or, or um, Peter's great betrayal as well, right? The denial of Christ. Every bit is, is, is savage as what Judas would do. And so we'll address those here this morning. And our takeaway will be a challenge to you and to me that we love one another, friends. That we love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ here at LifePoint and in our families and in the places where we rub shoulders with non-believers, that we demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ and that we fight against the dying of the light in our lives. That we fight against the darkness as it encroaches on our lives, as it's encroaching into the lives of these disciples on this very, very difficult evening for them and then obviously for Jesus himself. And so we're going to do that out of John's Gospel, uh, chapter 13 uh, this morning starting at verse 21, and we're going to finish up the chapter here. John's gospel is the fourth of four gospels in the New Testament. If you're new to your Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the gospel of John. And we've been in the gospel of John now for a little over a year, and we're in chapter 13 today. So if you're new to your Bibles, you can be turning to John's gospel, chapter 13, and we'll pick up here at verse 21 this morning. Let's stand together, shall we? Let's honor God as we read from his word today. John chapter 13, starting at verse 21. It picks up with these words, friends, after these things, after saying these things. Again, the context here, the Last Supper, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, talking with them about this upcoming betrayal, all these things. After Jesus said these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children... Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Amen. You can be seated. So John tells us that Jesus is troubled in spirit, and who wouldn't be on a night like this, friends? Jesus knew that there was a betrayer in the group of his disciples, these 12 men that he had chosen, that had lived life with him for the better part of three years, he called to himself a disciple that he knew would be a betrayer. He called to himself Judas, the son 
of Simon Iscariot. And so Judas was a betrayer that Jesus knew and knew well. And even though Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, it stung deeply for Jesus. He's troubled. The word there in the original language is agitated, right? Use it sometimes with water that is really uh, churned up in a storm, right? There's something in the soul of the man, Jesus, that is really agitated. He's hurting. This betrayal that's about to take place is painful for him. This is his friend. This is his brother. This is his co-worker. This is one that he'd poured his life and his ministry and his teaching into, and now he's about to lift up his hand or his heel to Jesus and to betray him. But this is not news for Jesus. Jesus knows this is about to happen, and herein lies a perplexing mystery, right? How does this happen? Jesus knows he's going to betray. Jesus chooses him knowing he's going to betray him. He's going to offer him an opportunity not to betray him, but he's going to betray him, and Jesus knows he's going to betray him. And he said this even earlier in John's gospel as it's recorded for us in John chapter 6. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Not the 12 here, but other disciples, others who had come and gathered around Jesus. If you remember the context here, Jesus has just talked about eating his body and drinking his blood and and having this type of close, intimate relationship with him. And we've talked through that in John chapter 6. But when Jesus uses this language, many in the crowds don't see it in the metaphorical sense that it is. And they are repelled by it and they walk away from Jesus. So Jesus says now to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He knows this is coming. He knows Peter will deny him. But Peter will be with Jesus in the end. And Judas will not. And that's a perplexing thing for us. It's perplexing for me. We can't plumb the depths of all of this, how all of these things are transpiring. We know this. Jesus, the man who is God, is troubled in his spirit about this. He's not happy about this. As I said earlier, the disciples, I don't think, ever expected Judas to betray Jesus. They're they're befuddled by this as well. His betrayal catches everyone flat-footed except for Jesus. There's apparently nothing in Judas's behavior over the last three years that have caused any of the disciples to think, if anybody is going to do it, it's going to be this guy. Right? There's nothing about Judas that would tell them, hey, we shouldn't trust this guy. Even when Jesus hands him the morsel and says, what you're about to do, do it quickly, and he gets up and leaves, the disciples think the best of him. Right? They assume, hey, he's got the money bag. Maybe he's going to go give to the poor. Maybe he's going to go buy some supplies for this great feast that we're about to have. They think the best of Judas. They're surprised at Judas's betrayal. Jesus is the only one who is not surprised at this, but his heart is troubling him never, nevertheless. Now, I think it's worth considering the seating arrangements at the meal, and you may think, well, why would we do that? Well, because it's interesting, that's why. Uh, but I think it's important as well. Right? In, in, in Jesus' day in Palestine, the Jews would eat generally like, like most of us do in a Western culture. They would sit at a table to do that. But during the great feasts, they would set pillows on the floor and they would sit either semicircular or in a circle and they would recline on their left elbow and the, mo- the food would be presented and then they would eat with their right hand while they're reclining back on their left 
elbow. And that's what they're doing here at this Passover feast. And it appears that the apostle John is sitting at Jesus' right or laying at his right so that he can lean back on Jesus. One of the reasons, I'm going to clear my throat one more time. One of the reasons why they would do this is not only could they lean back and eat with their right hand, but they could also lean back on another person, right? So they're not sitting there uh, without anything to recline upon. And so John is reclining back on Jesus to his right so he can have a personal conversation now with Jesus. But Judas gets the seat of honor to the left, and the seat of honor to the left is there so that the person who is hosting the event can now take the food and hand it as, hand it as an honor to the person to their left, right? That's where Judas is. So Judas is to the left, and John is to the right. We don't know where the others are sitting. We know that Peter's there, but Peter's not close enough to have a personal conversation with Jesus, and so he motions to John and says, hey, ask him who it is, right? Who's going to be the betrayer? So John is able to now lean back and have a private conversation with Jesus and say, who is it? Now, Jesus is then going to tell him. Whether Jesus tells the whole, crowd, the whole group, we don't know. Apparently not. Seems to be a private conversation between he and John. And he says, I'm going to dip this bread in, in the wine, and then I'm going to hand it to the betrayer, right? And he hands it to Judas, who is in the seat of honor to his left. Now, friends, there's something really interesting that's taking place here. Jesus is not just being very cordial to Judas. What Jesus is doing, apparently, is saying, here's one last chance, Judas. One last opportunity for peace, right? One last opportunity for you to reject the darkness and come into the light, right? Here's one more chance. Here's the bread, right? You are my friend. You are my brother. You are my disciple. I hand this to you as an offer of peace. Don't do what you're about to do. But Judas receives the bread and then in his heart makes a decision, finally, I'm going to betray this man. This is when Satan enters into his heart. This is when Satan enters into the picture, at least fully, kind of capturing, as it were, Judas, who has made himself an open vessel for Satan to do this, right? This is in fulfillment of prophecy. He who has taken my bread, the psalmist says, has lifted up his heel against me, right? This was King David speaking of the betrayers within his own community, now uh, projected into the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus says to Judas, take another opportunity here, right? Think about what you're going to do. I'm offering you peace. I'm offering you a chance to say no. And Judas rejects that. And instead of choosing to walk in the light, he chooses to walk into the darkness Instead, Now, John, in this gospel, has been stressing very clearly, right, that to know God is to know Him only through Christ and to know Him only by believing, only through faith. Right? There's a lot of themes in John's gospel, right? He's just an incredible writer, right? The theme of these seven signs that we've walked through, the theme of these seven discourses are these I am statements, multiple other discourses that he's going to have with the crowds and as he teaches them, the differences between light and darkness, right? This theme that runs throughout. There's a, there's a, there's a bit of an exodus theme that we really haven't had a chance to draw out on very much here uh, of the great exodus and how Jesus is leading his disciples in another great exodus into a new, into a new covenant and out of the old covenant. Some beautiful themes that are coming out 
in John's gospel. But one very clear one is the necessity of faith to believe in Christ in order to know and have peace with God through the Son. So on the opposite of that, the opposite theme, of course, in John's gospel is what happens to those who disbelieve, right? What happens to those of us who reject belief and we refuse to follow Jesus Christ. These two themes are coming to a head now in this final evening of Jesus's life, friends. I think it teaches us at least this, and that is that hell is not a mere theoretical possibility, friends. Hell is not a mere theoretical possibility. It is an awesome and fearful reality for those who reject Jesus Christ. John knows this, and he's making it plain. Jesus, of course, knows this, and he is making it plain. Hell is not just a possibility. It is a reality. And John is calling for us to believe in Jesus Christ and thus know the Father and to put away the disbelief that rejects not only Jesus but rejects God the Father as well. So we should make note of this, friends. Judas in the Scripture is called the son of destruction, Uh, He was destined to do what he did that evening, doomed from the very beginning. His eyes were blind, and Jesus knew he was a traitor from the start, even when Judas likely did not. It's likely Judas did not begin his ministry as a disciple of Christ thinking, I'm going to betray this guy one day. We don't know when the break happened for Judas. We have some hints in the scriptures, right? The gospels tell us that at one point Jesus was in the home of a person who had invited them in and a woman comes in, if you remember the story, right? Breaks a very expensive alabaster jar and pours a very expensive perfume over Jesus' feet. The perfume fills the whole house, right? The fragrance, John says. You can smell it through the whole house. And there's this great moment here for this woman and this interaction between this woman and, and Jesus, But there's a man there who's not happy about what's going on, right? And the scriptures tell us it was Judas. And Judas wasn't happy because he kept the money bag. Now, here's the problem. Judas Judas has has a situation, right, in his life. He's a broken man. He's a bent man. And he's not just a betrayer. He's also a thief, the scriptures say. And why he's upset about this breaking of the alabaster jar and the pouring of this perfume is he says, why couldn't this have been given to the poor, i.e. me, is what he meant. Or because I'm going to dip into the money bag, and that's a lot of money. And I would help myself to that. So why are we wasting this on this scenario, this situation, when this could have been given to the poor? Now, the Scriptures tell us he didn't give a rip about the poor. This is a bent man. And after that event, the Scriptures tell us, he went to the Pharisees and said, what kind of a price will you give me for this man? That appears to be the breaking point for him. But I suspect he's being broken all along throughout the ministry of Jesus. Jesus isn't fulfilling his expectations. And so he's going, to, he's going to push the needle a little further. He's going to move the ball down the field just a little bit further. And so Judas chooses the darkness. God, I think, undoubtedly hardened his heart. And Satan certainly entered into an open and willing vessel But friends, we need to be very clear about this. This is not just the arbitrary work of some sort of a capricious God who's manipulating just a poor old guy, just a poor man who's a morally good agent that God has twisted him to make him evil so that he can pour out his wrath on him. 
Judas is not a morally good agent. I'm not a morally good agent. I'm a moral agent, but I am not good outside of Christ. And I hate to say this, but neither are you, friends. And here's the thing. We're also not morally neutral either. This is not Judas who's a good man who wants to follow Jesus, but Jesus says, I don't want you to follow me. I need someone to betray me, and I picked you arbitrarily to be the betrayer. You're going to hell, whether you like it or not. That's not what's happening here. He's not even a neutral agent. Here is a man who's bent, who has been given a final opportunity from Jesus to choose the light over the darkness. Take this morsel. I offer it to you as a friend. Don't do what you're about to do. Judas takes the morsel, consumes it, and then goes out to do the deed. Satan enters into him at that moment. It's done now. There's no going back for Judas. He's opened himself up to the enemy, and the enemy has come in willingly and taken over this man. And now he will be the betrayer. But friends, we need to understand that judgment upon Judas is in keeping with with what Judas himself had chosen. This isn't God pushing somebody to the brink. We need to understand that not only in the life of Judas, but in the life of everybody else as well. God is not a a capricious God who just arbitrarily, by some sort of eeny, meeny, miny, mo, says you're in and you're out. In the first service, I actually said eeny, meeny, macaraca, which is something that my friends and I came up with when I was a little kid. That stuck with me, right? We know it as eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I know it as eeny, meeny, macaraca, rari, dominaca. Chickalicka lollipapa, um bum pushika. Most of us know it as eeny, meeny, miny, mo. But either way, that's not how God works, right? It isn't eeny, meeny, miny, mo, you're out. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, sorry, you're going to hell. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, you're the betrayer. That's not how this works, friends. We're not morally good agents, we're not morally neutral agents. We all deserve destruction. God in his mercy has reached into your lives and he's offered you peace. He's offered you peace, friends. And some of you in this room right now have rejected. You've slapped the hand away. And then we have the audacity to say, what a horrible God he is, sending people to hell who want to go to heaven. That's not how this works. It's never worked that way. Judas made these decisions. None of them caught God off guard. Friends, we must bow the knee to a sovereign God. We must bow the knee to a sovereign God. He's not pushing you over the brink. Make your choice. He's offering you peace. Don't slap the hand away, my friends. Still as of old, the poet said, men by themselves are priced. For 30 pieces, Judas sold himself, not Christ. God offers him peace. Jesus offers him peace. And Judas chooses the darkness over the light and becomes the greatest betrayer who will ever live on this planet. Now note this well. Satan is right there in the midst of this assembly, isn't he? He's right there. The minute that Judas decides, I'm going to take the bread and I'm going to eat it, but I'm betraying this man. Satan enters into the picture. He's there in the midst of this assembly. Jesus, the Son of God, is there. Twelve of his disciples are there. Maybe some of the family members are there as well. Here in this gathering where the Son of God is physically, Satan is there. And here I suspect John means Satan. 
Satan himself, not some demonic representation, but Satan himself is there in the midst of this assembly. But listen to this and hang on to this and remember this. Satan doesn't take over at that point. Jesus is absolutely in control of this situation, isn't he? He's absolutely in control here. Satan is there, but he does the bidding of God. He doesn't take over and decide, I'm taking over for now, right? Jesus, you're out of the picture. I'm going to kill you, and I got Judas, and I'm going to take care of this situation. No. The minute Satan enters into him, what does Jesus do? He takes control of the situation. What you're about to do, do it quickly. You're going to do it. Go do it. Get it done. He's the one who's in control here. He's the one who's taking this situation and dealing with it as he chooses to deal with it. Verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Judas, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what are you about to do? Do quickly. Friends, Jesus names the betrayer and then offers him one last opportunity. And then when Judas had opened himself up completely to Satan, Jesus then takes over and directs the rest of this scenario for that evening. And then John tells us this beautiful nugget of writing here. And it was what? Night. It was night. John's just not telling us what time it is. He's telling us the spiritual dimensions of what's taking place, right? Here is this theme juxtaposing light and darkness, right? Now, as Jesus is recorded saying in Luke's gospel, is the hour of darkness. This is when shadows or this is when evil will reign. And the rest of this night is going to bear that out for him. It's going to bear this out. This is the time now when evil reigns. Not because God loses control, because God is in control. Satan will have his moment as it were. John isn't just saying Things are happening after the sun goes down. He's telling us that this is a very tragic time. Darkness is reigning at this moment. Friends, we live in a day and age when what we call deconstructionism is really taking root within particularly the Western church. Now, it's been happening throughout the ages, but we're seeing it more and more. Alisa Childers will, will address some of this with you ladies on Friday and Saturday, and we'll address some of this on Saturday evening in the Q&A as well. You don't have to necessarily know what the term deconstruction means. Particularly, you can tell just by the term what it kind of uh, constitutes, and that is people who have said, I'm a follower of Jesus, but now because of social media and the way that everybody has a voice that can go out, they go on to social media, or some of them have a, a large platform anyway to speak into this nation or into this world and say, I once knew Jesus, but now I know better, right? Now the life has dawned on me and I see how, how devoid of anything good that is and now I'm declaring publicly that I've deconstructed my faith and I'm trying to find some other journey or I've just rejected it altogether. And it gets the church, not just life point, but the church, I think we begin to wonder, what's going on? Why are so many people walking away from Jesus? How does this happen? Is the, is the church crumbling, right? Is the church falling apart? And friends, that's not what's happening Jesus has already told us that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. The church will exist until Jesus comes back. He will come back for his bride. The bride will exist. We will be here, friends, whether we're living or dead. We will be here, those of us who know Christ. The church is the church triumphant. And Satan cannot take control over it. 
Come what way with how many thousands or millions of deconstruction stories may be out there on the internet of even some heroes that we might have said in the faith or in the music industry or whatever the case might be. There was a pastor in America by the name of DeWitt Talmadge in the 20th century. Very powerful preacher, very powerful writer as well. In one of his sermons, he kind of devoted to this whole concept of people who were claiming to know Jesus. Apparently, there had been some big names who had also, through the newspapers and things, had kind of walked away from Jesus, and he was addressing that. Now, back then, they didn't call it deconstructionism. They called them infidels. Those who claimed to know Jesus but then rejected Jesus were an infidel. And he said, I think a very helpful metaphor or, or image or illustration here. He says, it's similar to this. In his day, people would get on a steamer and go across the ocean. Sometimes there would be a thousand people on these huge ships. And he says, on some of these ships, sometimes a person sometimes will jump overboard. And it causes great consternation. There's a lot of conversation about that. And when it gets back to port, it usually hits the newspapers that somebody jumped off the ship. But what we forget is that the ship went to the port with 999 people. The one person who jumped overboard created a lot of stir, but it didn't keep the ship from getting to the port. Friends, this deconstructionism and these heroes who go online to tell us how they've given up on Jesus doesn't keep the church of Jesus Christ from safely taking thousands of others into the kingdom. God is not defeated in this silliness and this, I grew up a Christian, I was a great Christian, but now I know better. I would argue that you don't know better, but I don't have time to go online to argue about all these things. This deconstruction has gripped the church in so many ways, and there's so much chatter about it. These men, women who had great status and have walked away and have disappointed us, betrayed the church of Jesus Christ. It's painful, it hurts, it agitates us in our spirit as Jesus was agitated in his Spirit. Let me just read you one little snippet from his sermon. Again, infidel means one who claimed to know Jesus and no longer does. These infidel advocates demonstrate the meanness of infidelity, infidelity by trying to substitute for the chief consolation of the world absolutely nothing. Or in other words, the chief consolation of our world, friends, is Jesus Christ. They're substituting nothing for him. You have only to hear them at the edge of the grave or at the edge of their coffin discursing to find out that there is no comfort in infidelity. There is more good cheer in the hooting of an owl at midnight than in their discourse at the verge of their grave. You might as well ask the spirit of eternal darkness to discourse on the brightness of everlasting day. He says to go to them to ask them about the meaning of life is like going to Satan and saying, can you explain to me what the glories of heaven will be like? They just don't know. Now, I'm not trying to badmouth people who are struggling with faith and have doubts. We all have those things, friends. But many are confidently now going out and telling the world that there is no hope in Christ. And they should know because they once hoped in Christ and they found it wanting. They found it wanting, friends, because they're infidels. Because they didn't know Christ and they don't know the glories of Christ and therefore, they cannot actually tell us anything meaningful about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And so Judas is a betrayer. And he did what he was destined to do. Not because he had no choice, but because he had a choice. 
and he chose darkness over light. And now Jesus has changed the subject matter as we move through our text, right? Judas is now left. The betrayer is gone. Now there are 11 faithful men with him. One of them will betray Jesus, Peter. He'll betray him. We call it a denial, but it's a betrayal. He won't do it one time. He'll do it three times, but he's faithful. And Jesus knows he's faithful. And so now Jesus will begin to address his faithful followers. And he'll tell them, I'm about to glorify the Father. And the Father is going to be glorified in me. And there will be great glory that's going to take place. Not after my resurrection. Now. Right now. The glorification of God and the glory of God and God glorifying the Son begins to happen now, he says. Isn't it amazing, friends, the counterintuitive nature of our faith and our God? It's just counterintuitive, right? We think Jesus is about to die. It's the darkest hour, right? Evil is reigning. Certainly God isn't glorified. And Jesus is about to be put to death. Satan will triumph in this evening. It may not end up well for him in the end, but for right now, my goodness, who's getting the glory? It must be Satan. Jesus says, no, no. In my obedience to the Father, God is glorified. And God is glorifying me, friends. What will take place... That next day in Jesus' life will mean the salvation of everyone in here who knows Christ and everyone who has gone before us and everyone who will come after us. It means the glory of God. It doesn't mean the reign of Satan. It means the reign of God Almighty in the lives and the hearts of those who have come to know Him by faith through Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't say, hang on there for just a little while because I'm going to be glorified in a few days. No, he says, right now, at once, this begins. The betrayer is gone. I'm speaking to my faithful followers and God is glorified in what's about to take place tonight and tomorrow as well. Five times he'll use that word, friends. Glory, 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 glory. God is going to be glorified. Christ will be glorified in him. God, in the obedience of the Son, going to the cross on our behalf. And Jesus basking in the radiance of the Father's glory, even in this darkest hour for him and for the disciples. And so now Jesus turns to a word of comfort. He has to go. And they can't follow with him, but they will follow him later. And then notice what he says here. Remember what I said to the Jews? I told them they couldn't follow. And now I have to say that to you too. Here's the difference between what Jesus said to the crowds earlier recorded in John's gospel and what he says to the disciples because there's an important sentence that Jesus doesn't use. Earlier to the crowds, he says, I'm leaving and you cannot follow me where I'm going and you will die in your sins. He's saying to the crowds, to the bulk of them, you're going to reject me. You're going to die in your sins. You're not going to follow me. What does he say to the disciples? I am going away someplace now and you can't follow me but you will follow me, right? In fact, in chapter 14, we're going to read that Jesus says, I'm actually going to go and prepare a place for you so that you can come and be where I am. Significant difference between what he says to the crowds and what he says to these 11 faithful men, and again, maybe some other family members and others who are there in the upper room that, that evening. Jesus tells them, I'm going to be glorified. God is glorified. I'm leaving, but you're going to follow me. You're going to be where I am. Before he goes, he gives them a final apologetic. Francis Schaeffer called this upper room discourse Jesus' final apologetic. An apologetic is simply an apology in, in the, 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 the best sense of the word. is just simply a defense. 
This is the greatest defense for our faith, Francis Schaeffer said. And that is what Jesus says to the disciples. Listen, love one another. As I've loved you, now you love one another. This is how all men, all people will know that you're my disciples, right? It's a final apologetic. If you can't win them over with the gospel and with words and with the way that we proclaim Jesus Christ, then show it in your life by loving one another. People will put two and two together and see these are followers of Jesus and look how they love one another. Jesus says to the disciples, I've loved you. Now you love each other, even in this dark hour. You do what it means to to love one another. And in so doing, you'll offer this final apologetic to the world. You will show that you are my disciples. It will be that final word to people that this is what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And this is going to be played out first and foremost by the disciples themselves, and I think future disciples, us included. It's a command for us to love one another as a sign to this world, friends, that we are committed to Jesus Christ. I have loved you, Jesus says to us. Now, love one another. Love one another. Demonstrate that love for one another. Later, as John writes his first epistle, he'll say something very similar to them. God is love, he says to them. And those who claim to know God must love one another. He's remembering what Jesus said to them. And he's repeating it decades later as he writes to the church. Do this final apologetic. Love each other. Why? God is love. And we are to love one another. Now notice, friends, this is taking place at the darkest hour of Jesus' life. And he's saying to his disciples, in this time, you love one another and demonstrate that love to one another so that people will see that. How do we do that? Francis Schaeffer gives us a couple of very practical ways, and let me just share them with you quickly. Two ways that we can do this. There's multiple ways, but two ways. Number one, we can be willing to apologize to one another and ask for forgiveness. That's a sign of love, friends. Apologize for your sinful behavior. Ask a brother or sister. Ask a wife. Ask a child. Ask a parent. Ask a friend. Will you please forgive me? That's a sign of love, friends, to say, I have wronged you. Now, please forgive me. Now, what's the second act of practical love that we can show to one another? We can offer grace and forgiveness. That's what we can do. These two go together, friends, to demonstrate it's applicable in our lives. This is what it means to love. We ask for forgiveness. We receive forgiveness. This is a great act of love within the community of Christ. Now, friends, there's some exceptions to what I'm about to say right now, but let me just say this. Practice this in your marriages. Practice this in your families. You will have a strong marriage, and you will have a strong family. Are there exceptions? Of course there are, right? Some things we do to other human beings breaks that bond so significantly that even when we offer grace and forgiveness, the the relationship is severed on this side of heaven. But that's rare. There are only some exceptions, a few. For the bulk of the time in our lives, friends, if we would simply be willing to say, I've wronged you. Right? I've, just, I've said something. I've done something. Now, please forgive me. As an act of love, those of us who know Christ say, I do forgive you. I, I grant you that grace. And what's our model? Jesus, right? 
As I've loved you, now you love one another, right? And what does Jesus do immediately after that? He says, I'm going away. And Peter says, where are you going to go? Because I want to go with you. In fact, I'll die if I have to. And Jesus says, no. That's in your heart, but that's not in your strength, Peter. Even Peter, the great apostle, is not going to make it through this night unscathed, friends. It's a dark night. Shadows, darkness are reigning in this hour. And Peter won't make it through unscathed. He will deny Christ three times with cursing. He will deny Christ. But what is Jesus doing? He's offering Peter what I would call just a future grace. He's saying, this is going to happen tonight. But you're going to be there at the end, right? In fact, it's recorded for us in Luke's gospel that Jesus says, I've prayed for you, Peter. Satan has come to me and said, I want to sift this guy like wheat. And the answer from God is, go ahead and sift. But you don't get this one. Jesus says, I prayed for you. And when you are restored, or in other words, you will be restored. You will be there at the end. Now you restore your brothers. You be the one who restores them, right? I offer you a future forgiveness. Receive it. Now you offer forgiveness to your brothers as well, right? There's a future grace he extends to him. Why didn't he pray for Judas? I don't know. I don't know. There's a mystery there. I can't plumb the depths of that one, friend. But he does pray for Peter. And Peter is there. And he tells Peter, you will deny me. That's done. You will be there at the end. You will be faithful. You will hold fast. I've prayed for you, and you'll make it through. Friends, I think this is just a very clear example, and I close with this, of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7 between Peter and Judas. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation and leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow leads only to what, does he say? Do you remember? Death. It leads to death. Peter had a godly sorrow. It led to his profound repentance and to his salvation and would leave him no regrets the rest of his life. Judas was sorry. It didn't turn out the way he wanted it to turn out. And then he went and killed himself. His sorrow led to his death. Peter's sorrow led to his salvation. Friends, have a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. You will be there in the end. Christ will be there with you. He's interceding for us even now, the scripture said. He's praying for you. He's offering you peace. Receive that offer of peace from him. Friends, God's eternal plan flowed through Judas, who was a moral agent who chose darkness over light. Peter found love and courage a hard thing to find that night. But in the darkness of that night, love reigned. It, it rained that night. And it poured out on Peter, and it poured out on the other ten disciples, and they were with him, Jesus, at the very end. So friends, love one another. Love one another. And fight against the dying of the light in your lives. Fight against it. Hold fast to Jesus Christ. Amen? God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the strength to do that. We cannot do it on our own. We could sit here all day long saying, I would have known, I would have done better. It is simply not true, God, and we recognize that, and we pray, God, for strength and courage and perseverance in our fight of faith. Give us these things as a great gift, God, we pray.
We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.